Hello and welcome to the Random Box podcast. Today I have Dr. Theodore Liner from IBM Research and Geodes. Theo received his degree in theoretical chemistry in 2001 from the University of Pisa, following which he completed a doctorate in 2006 in computational chemistry under Professor Michel Parinello. From 2006 to 8, he worked as a postdoctoral researcher under Dr. Jörg Herter at the University of Zurich, where he developed algorithms for Avinicio and classical molecular dynamics simulation before joining the IBM Research Zurich lab. In IBM, his work has focused on complex material simulations for industry-related problems in energy storage, life sciences, and nanoelectronics. And with a recent focus on the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies to chemistry and material science problems. Welcome to you. Thank you, thank you, Abigyan, and uh, thanks to all the people that are listening at the podcast. It's really great to have you, and you have had a really eclectic path through science in both academia and industry. So, where did it all start for you? Were you always someone intending to foray into the sciences, or was there some opportune moment that led you into this journey? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, I. I think I always had, uh, uh, since I was a child, a very strong interest for the nature, the nature surrounding me. I mean, I, I was the type of guy that was constantly playing with uh, 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 bugs, insects, and I was fascinated by the nature really profoundly. And uh, what I didn't really know was... Uh, Uh, what type of scientific career I would have uh, developed in the future. Um, but, but the science part, I must say, has always been a very important, a very important component uh, since, uh, since the very early stages. You know. So that's really interesting. And you talked about being fascinated by the living organisms around you and playing around with nature, natural organisms. So one would think that you might have forayed into biology, but by chemistry of all things, because that fit your interest in broad area of sciences the best. And that's how you went into chemistry or was there some other way the initiation into chemistry took place? Oh, let me tell you this story. This is a story that I, I, I normally tell to all friends in front of a beer, but I mean, I'll, I'll do an exception and disclose the story in the podcast. Um, no, in, in reality, uh, until my, I, I have been exposed to chemistry um, at the very early stage of my education. So I, after uh, the, um, Low schools. I mean, in the um, in 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 the upper schools. Basically, I have been um, in the high school. I have been uh, uh, doing a technical institutes for industrial chemistry. So I I must say that uh, the vast majority of the chemistry that I know today is uh, something that I really learned uh, during my teenager years. Um, I. I loved chemistry. This was really a love uh, at first sight. Uh, I have been participating to the Chemistry Olympiad in Moscow uh, as well. Um, so I, I think there were a certain number of elements that were really characterizing chemistry in my life. However, when I had to take the choice of the college, I had uh, decided to go for biotech, biotechnology. These were middle of the 90s. Uh, I think uh, in Italy, where I come from, uh, there was only one university that had uh, a faculty in uh, biotechnology, biotechnologies. Uh, and, and, and this was located in uh, Genova, so in north of Italy. Um, and basically, I was sure that I would have enrolled in that course and I would have done a course in biotechnology. However, what happened is that uh, short, shortly after I applied for that um, university uh, curricula, I got a call from uh, uh, one of my high school teachers, um, professor in math. And uh, 
he told me he was, he was genuinely interested in uh, what type of uh, choice I would have done for the university. And uh, I remember that I, I explained to him I want to do biotech and, and he was listening carefully. At a certain point, he just told me, well, you know, biotechnology is interesting, but it's also a new discipline. It's a little bit, uh, I mean, sure, if you want to do it, you should do it. Uh, but do you know about the existence of a school in Pisa that is called Scuola Normale Superiore? And of course, I mean, I, I, I was completely ignorant. I said, I have no clue what you are talking about. 1996, I did, I mean, there was not even internet. At least I did not have internet at home. And uh, so it took a little bit of, um, um, uh, I took a little bit of time to, uh, deep dive a little bit better into his suggestion. And I discovered that there was uh, this school that, that is a sort of excellent school. So it's a school where only 25 to 30 people every year can enter uh, for uh, scientific disciplines and also for literature, uh, humanistic studies. Uh, however, they did not have biotech uh, in, as, as a part of the curricula because the school is located in Pisa, very famous for the Leaning Tower, uh, but they had only physics, math, chemistry, and biology. And so I decided, you know what? I know chemistry and uh, <laughs> I will try to enter in the school for chemistry. Being my first plan, the one of going however to the university to do, to do biotechnology. So I, I did all uh, the preparation, thanks also to other professors at the high school. Uh, for there, is a, there are three tests uh, to enter in the school. So I did all the three tests. And the reality, Abby, is that at the end of the third test, I felt completely in love by that environment. It's like, uh, um, I don't know, I mean, to, to give you the example, uh, the X-Men schools, it's very similar. It's, it's an environment where you have uh, um, uh, excellent students, you have excellent professors. Everything is hosted in historical buildings uh, across the city. And so I decided to uh, completely eliminate biotechnology from my profile and stick on chemistry. And uh, since then, I must say, I remained always with chemistry. So that's in short how I arrived to chemistry. It's it's funny life sometimes. That's a really fantastic overview of your initiation and journey into chemistry. And you talked about sort of wanting to foray into biotech in the late 90s, but eventually foring into chemistry. And as we see over the last two decades, both the fields have been revolutionized by the effect of computation and maths and engineering really coming into play in the last couple of decades, thanks to thanks to some pioneers and following the completion of the Human Genome Project, many of these things took steam and you have been in the thick of things and it seems you haven't really regretted your journey into chemistry ever since. No, not at all, at all. And I, I, I have been also incredibly lucky. I have been uh, uh, always surrounded by people that I have... Uh, uh, gave me the opportunity to grow and to learn from them. Uh, I mean, uh, from, from the high school and the support. I mean, honestly, if uh, that math professor at the high school would have not given me a call to tell me about the existence of this opportunity, my life would have been completely different. And uh, uh, I, I confess that actually... Uh, no regret, I would redo absolutely everything, including uh, the possibility, you were mentioning the genome project, I mean, that, that is a field where computing and technology has been uh, uh, of great importance. I remember it was the end of the 90s, and <laughs> there was this mutual fight between private sector and public sector to reach the entire codification of the genome, and uh, these were very inspiring years, years where uh, there was, I mean, it, was, it is also the years of the, uh, the, the, the 2000, uh, the, the internet bubble. I mean, basically the, the, 
all, all the economical um, clash in Wall Street and the many opportunities that that gave to several people. So absolutely no regret. I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely happy. If I look back, actually, I would discuss with you of every single aspect of my life. <laughs> That's absolutely some very decent points out there. And going to school on Normale, and you talked about sort of initiating into chemistry in a proper manner. So were you always looking out to pursue graduate studies and get a doctorate and foray into academia? Or was it a happenstance and another of your great mentors sort of guided you along that path? Oh, uh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, when I started, uh, even, even my journey into chemistry has been, uh, this is the second part of the story. Uh, so get, get ready, get a chair for three minutes. Uh, so when I started chemistry at the first year of the university, I entered in this school, uh, Scuola Normale in Pisa, which by the way is the twin sister of uh, another very famous school in Paris. It's called uh, L'Ecole Normale Supérieure de Paris. So the two schools were uh, are actually twin sisters uh, and uh, the one in Pisa has been uh, created by Napoleone when uh, he basically conquered Italy and he decided to found a twin sister of the, the, the Paris one. But this is, this is historical, historical facts. Let's put them aside. When I started the university in the first year, uh, I wanted to do organic chemistry. I was thinking of myself as a synthetic organic chemist. I, I, was, I remember that the school itself was not an environment for experimental chemists. Uh, the school is very famous for people like uh, uh, Enrico Fermi. Uh, he was a student of that school. Uh, he is very famous for a large number of mathematicians, including the, the last field medal, Figalli. Uh, and uh, so, we are all like a small family, but the school is heavily oriented towards theory, math, physics, theory. And so I remember the first year I was there and I, my genuine love for, was for organic chemistry to stay in the lab. And then after, <laughs> I would say, three years of brainwashing, I mean, being complete, always exposed to uh, theory, math, uh, uh, physics, uh, uh, at the university, of course, I was doing the regular course in chemistry, uh, and we were doing a little bit of math, really the, 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 the essential for, for the course. But in Normale, then, we had to do other courses, and the courses were normally incredibly advanced courses for math, physics, and, and, and so on. And, Abi, the, re the reality is that at the end of the third year, I said, no, I don't want to do organic chemistry. I will be doing theoretical chemistry. And uh, that's basically what happened. So after I did theoretical chemistry, I got my master. Uh, I, I think I decided, I don't have a very clear memory, but I think I decided pretty quickly that I wanted to continue. Uh, I wanted to get uh, uh, the, 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 the PhD, basically, degree. Uh, it is also the first PhD degree in my family. So I, I, I wanted to set the record, basically, uh, at least in my family. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I mean, uh, this, uh, this was actually the, the, the decision. I mean, the intention was always the one to remain in research. Uh, I didn't know yet where, whether it would have been academic research or industrial research, uh, but I, I considered the PhD more like a, an opportunity for a personal growth, an opportunity to learn more, an opportunity to also demonstrate to the rest of the scientific community that I was an independent scientist. Um, so um, it somehow came without uh, too many decisions. I think I didn't spend probably more than five minutes deciding that I wanted to, to keep doing the PhD. Yeah. 
That's yet again a really fantastic overview of your initiation into graduate studies and all. So coming to your graduate school, so what was the project, the project that eventually enthused you for the next three, four years and became the crux of your doctoral thesis? Yeah, so I, I started my, I mean, in, um, let, let me start a little bit with the master because I think it's important. Um, so as I said, I decided to, to, at the third year, I decided to do theoretical chemistry. And uh, I always try to, uh, to do um, projects, semester projects during, during the master um, connected uh, quite a lot to the computational technologies. Uh, and uh, my master work has been on computational photochemistry. Uh, I have to thank Maurizio, Maurizio Persico, uh, University of Pisa, uh, we did amazing things uh, in the space of uh, computational photochemistry. Uh, it was a period where very few people were talking about uh, uh, non-adiabatic dynamics. These are, I mean, terms, uh, <laughs> very awkward terms, probably for the vast majority of the people listening at the podcast. But um, this same topic became like 10 years after they became incredibly popular. People really finally realized the crucial importance of having uh, um, uh, sufficient statistical sampling, uh, even when you run photochemical, photochemical processes. Uh, however, for the PhD, uh, my life has never been really a straight line. Uh, for the PhD, I decided to... Um, at, the, at the very beginning to um, start um, a path in uh, uh, theoretical biophysics. Um, somehow always connected by the interest that I had always in the biotechnologies. And uh, it didn't really work out. I mean, I, I really realized at the beginning that actually... Um, I mean, the time that I had invested into chemistry uh, in the previous year was uh, really um, the time to, you know, to monetize, to start building something on that. And so I decided also thanks to uh, my supervisor at that time, um, Fabio Beltram um, in uh, Scuola Normale. Uh, I decided to switch. And this is the period where I moved from, uh, I completely changed the course of my uh, PhD from theoretical biophysics into uh, computational chemistry. And it's the time where I joined uh, the group of Parinello. Um, now, again, for many people, that name may tell very little, but I mean, for me, it was like uh, an incredible privilege to work with uh, people that were uh, constantly doing uh, uh, computational chemistry research. And Parinello, I must say, and, and his group has always been forefront. I think they have been uh, the people that really demonstrated how you can use uh, uh, computational resources for studying the complexity of the chemistry at the atomistic level. So it's really at the intercross between theory and application, uh, but always keeping a very strong focus on uh, the computing power. That's a and really... So, no, 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 go ahead, Abby. Uh, no, so that's a really great overview. And yeah, you were continuing on something. No, no, what I wanted to say is that uh, joining uh, the group of uh, Parinello, of course, then uh, um, brought me on my PhD topic that was uh, actually the, the beginning of your discussion, I mean, your question. Uh, and the PhD has been evolving completely around uh, the development of uh, algorithms. So writing uh, mathematical algorithms for... Uh, making the calculation of uh, biological system or in general material systems faster. Uh, and uh, so you, you have a certain computational power, you try to develop algorithms that are taking advantage of that power and uh, reducing the cost of uh, uh, the simulation. 
So that has been uh, the core of my work with, uh, uh, with Michele uh, Parinello during, uh, during the PhD. That's it again, a very interesting insight into the fantastic work that you did. And you talked about sort of uh, traversing a lot of different paths before you narrowed down on something. And hearing your journey till now, it seems you have had a life and a research career full of random walks through and through. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I, uh, it's part of my myself. It's part really of uh, uh, who I am, I mean, uh, as a person. Uh, it has always been very difficult and chaotic. Even the organization of the podcast, I mean, shifted many times. But it's, uh, I, I am a strong believer that each of us has his own way to reach the objective. Some paths may be more linear. Other paths may be a little bit less linear and more, more uh, random work-based. And uh, I think it's not really important uh, where we are arriving, so the final objective, but is important all the experiences that we have been made, making to arrive there. And I think uh, for many people, the linearity of the approach is exactly what is making them. Uh, in my case, I'm, uh, uh, how to say, an untiring explorer. Uh, I, I think I probably have even, uh, uh, some issues in keeping the, uh, the attention focused on specific tasks, because I'm always constantly fascinated by uh, many things that are happening around. And the same happened, for instance, with uh, the, the most recent work after I joined IBM uh, in the space of uh, uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, it's one of those fields where wherever you look around, I mean, you find new things to, uh, to do research on. And uh, if there is really one thing that I would say characterizes my path in general is uh, the profound interest towards uh, science. Uh, and that's part of the, the random world. Truly, those are some really wonderful insights. And the academia can be a grueling place sometimes, and graduate school especially so. So have you ever been at the facing end of the ubiquitous imposter syndrome? And if yes, how did you confront it? Um, let, me, let me just... Uh... Can you rephrase the question, uh, Abi? Sorry. So there are a lot of people who sort of feel uh, there is this whole feeling of not being good enough because okay. being stuck on some problem and all. People tend to call it imposter syndrome, where you see other people making headways and yet you are stuck on a problem. And graduate school can be a place where one faces this through and through. So how did you tackle yeah. this in grad school and elsewhere in your life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, oh, if I had, yes, I had, I think I had several occasions where you get stuck on something and uh, um, uh, it looks like there is no, no solution. And uh, I, I think it's part of the resilience uh, that we need to have when doing research. And it's part of the uh, research uh, attitude. Uh, there may still be problems that are very difficult to address, and there may still be problems that will remain open-handed problems. Um, but in general, so I, I technically try to give myself a time limit. Um, if you cannot address a topic in that time limit from a budget perspective, it doesn't make any sense. You can move forward. Um, but otherwise it's really a matter of resilience. I mean, if you, if you see a wall, I think the right attitude and what I learned in uh, uh, 24 plus years of experience between university and, and research uh, is that when you see, when you are in front of a wall, you should look at the wall less as a wall and more as a challenge. So the very first thing is always, should always be, how can I 
overcome this wall instead of uh, thinking, oh, that's really a huge wall. <laughs> and so I, I, I know, and, and, and the, the, this, this, this attitude is not easy and uh, takes time, takes time to um, build that sense of confidence that allow you to embrace challenges instead of uh, fear challenges. Um, so I, I think I lived uh, these experiences more or less like everybody of my age. Uh, but what I can tell you is that now uh, with a little bit more of years on the shoulders, um, it's different. Uh, it's actually like uh, looking at the complexity that is coming and immediately trying to understand how can I handle that complexity. So my suggestion to everybody, even young people that are listening at the podcast is always the one, don't be worried. You may not have all the skills that you may need to address specific difficulties, but the world is a nice place. Reach out to people, ask for help, explain the complexity that you are trying to deal from a scientific perspective. And you will always have somebody that will give you the right hint to uh, allow you to jump from the other side of the wall. Because after one wall, there will be another one. And that's science. I mean, science is just like that. It's like a constant run, uh, skipping, jumping wall by wall. And uh, it's a very, very interesting personal gratification. Yeah. That's a truly wonderful answer full of really patient insight. And you really distilled the essence of science right at the end and all. And something that I'm curious to know, you talked about sort of pouring um, into the industry, joining IPM research. So did you always see it coming? Were there some things because of, of the way academia function? You found it not so feasible enough to sort of continue on a long surgeon and uh, climb the hoops through the gen normal faculty positions in a university. And there's a reason you decided to make a professional switch to the industry. And how has your experience been over the years in the industry? Absolutely. Um, the decision was really dictated by many things. Uh, I. First of all, I always realize my limits. I know that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a person that uh, um, loves to, um, and by the way, the, the personality, whatever people say, the personality changes with the getting older and older. So, I mean, that's, that's something that I, I realize myself. I mean, but uh, at the time, and we are talking about uh, 13, 14 years ago, more or less, um, I knew what I wanted. I knew that I wanted to do research and I knew that I wanted to do high quality research. I also know myself and I know that I'm a person that gets incredibly and easily bored. If you give me the same topic to study for more than a couple of years, I'm looking for something else because I need the uh, that intellectual stimulation, uh, the, the, the need of learning always something new, uh, that, uh, that it's really at the end making up my days. I mean, uh, yesterday, for instance, after a discussion, I decided to, to start digging into some sociological studies. I mean, that I consider, I always consider very fascinating social studies in general, but, but this is really only to tell you that when I had to decide what to do in my life, whether this would have been academia or industry, I knew what I wanted and I knew that uh, I was a very bad teacher. I'm the sort of teacher that uh, if you have very good students in front of you, I'm giving all myself. But if you have students that are less performant, I had the tendency to be uh, how to say, not to pay too much attention to them. 
And that's bad. For being a professor, this is really a very bad characteristics because I believe that the number one role or of whoever is in academia is not doing research, but is teaching, is creating the next generation of professional people, creating the next generation of scientists. Unfortunately, this mechanism has been completely broken by the way academia is working. Um, so at that time, I really said I cannot do an academic career. It doesn't really fall in my, in my wishes. So I remain basically with uh, uh, the opportunity of industry or a, a private research institute. And I, I remember I was already in Zurich when I, when I decided to apply for IBM. Um, I knew IBM. Uh, compared, I mean, probably I, I was still young enough to remember the IBM personal computer uh, in the 90s. And so for me, uh, IBM was always like, okay, that's, uh, that's a big company. Hey, uh, I mean, I, I, and you as a chemist, what are you going to do in a company like IBM? So it has always been very complicated. I mean, for me, IBM was always the uh, information technology company. If you do informatics, you may have joined IBM. In reality, I discovered that there was a material science group, and so computational material science group. And so I applied. I was, uh, of course, lucky. Uh, without being lucky in your life, I think you can uh, barely do anything. You have to, to be at the right place, the right moment. Um, and uh, of course, you have also to to have this, the right skills that the people are looking for. But to make it short, I managed to enter and well, it's 13 years. And for me, every day is like the first day. I'm always super excited about what I'm doing. It's, uh, uh, as I told you at the beginning, one of the condition was to uh, not to get entangled for a lot of time on the same topics. Uh, and this is one of the beauty of the IBM research uh, institution. We always uh, do forefront research. And anytime there, is, there are new topics, we switch to new topics. So in my 13 years, I've been going through battery materials studies. I have been going through scientific software development. I have been going through... Um, uh, combustion processes for improving uh, the, uh, the combustion of uh, polyalcohols. I have been going through uh, recovery of insulating materials for high uh, current voltages. I have been going more recently on AI, and on AI, I think we are having uh, one of the, uh, I would say, most interesting, especially for the rest of the team, uh, periods uh, in the last 20 years. It's really like uh, uh, if you get the right statistical um, uh, background and lots of uh, initiative, you can be, you can create so much knowledge by using data and machine learning. So to make it short, um, academia was not really fitting my my personality and uh, IBM uh, was the choice that I decided to do. Uh, and since then, uh, I would never go back. Those are some really interesting perspectives. And again, a very nice overview of the, all the things that you have been uh, sort of enthused by, by being in this wonderful organization for over a decade and a half now. And those are some really interesting points. And you talked about sort of starting off by sort of expressing interest in the computation material science group and then traversing a really eclectic research career path. And right now you have been doing something at the intersection of artificial intelligence and chemistry. So could you just mind shedding light on some of your projects at IBM that you're most awesome. proud of? and your involvement with them. Absolutely, absolutely. So we did something, uh, Abhi, that um, I consider like 
closing the loop when I started the university. If you remember, I told you I, I joined the Scuola Normale in Pisa and I wanted to be an organic chemist. Um, the reason why I wanted, I, I can be very, very honest. The reason why I wanted to be an organic chemist is that uh, while many people, many friends, many colleagues were seeing organic chemistry like a discipline that they had to learn, memorize quite often, I was always finding a logic. I was always able to see beyond the memorization. I'm not a visual person. I cannot really memorize information. So for me, it's important to build a specific logical construct of whatever I'm learning. And that was the reason that why organic chemistry was so fascinating for me. Uh, so what did we do that I'm particularly proud of? Uh, three years ago, we started looking at uh, uh, the use of uh, uh, natural language models for organic chemistry. And uh, what, what does that really mean? It means that uh, um, we, we take models that are normally trained for translating between languages, and we apply these models to a large set of organic chemistry reactions. Now consider, uh, if you get an example of a translation machine, consider that you have a software that can translate between uh, English and, uh, um, I don't know, Japanese, just to make an example. Um, in order to train this AI architecture, you will need to have a very large collection of English sentences with the corresponding translation in Japanese. Now, it's sufficient that you, you, during the training, you are exposing the architecture to the English and the Japanese sentence, and the architecture will learn many things. More specifically, we learn the English grammar, we learn the Japanese grammar, and we learn also how to map English words with Japanese words without you ever specifying any, um, any linguistic information. Now, what we did, we actually did the same thing. We took the organic chemistry records, and you know that these records are normally represented in a diagrammatic form, in a, in a graphical form. So we decided to work with uh, a linear form, a form that is more linguistic uh, equivalent. So a, a sequence of numbers and characters that are exactly identifying this, this graphical representation. And uh, we decided to train the model by uh, using, instead of English, all the representation, the linguistic representation of the molecules that are normally on the left side of the arrow. So everything that entails to reactants, reagents, and catalysts. And instead, the Japanese language is everything which is on the right part of the arrow. So everything which is the product. Now, the interesting thing is that, and this was our bet. When we started in 2017, we had one big bet. And the bet was whatever difficult it is for humans to, um, uh, to, to, to learn and to even understand organic chemistry is a language. So that was our assumption. We assumed that organic chemistry is a language. And uh, instead of trying to prove that it's a language in a mathematical sense, we decided to, to do the, the, the different things. We decided to say, if organic chemistry is really a language, we can use the language models in order to extract from organic chemistry data the rules, the grammar of organic chemistry. And this is exactly what is happening. When you train with one language being reactants, reagents, and another language being the products, the architecture is capable of extracting from this data all the rules that are normally and traditionally uh, taught at school. And this is really the beginning of a huge work that we have been uh, further expanding and that now is available to everybody around the world. Uh, and it is uh, codenamed uh, Arixen for chemistry. So everybody, uh, people that are listening and may be interested on uh, 
how to use artificial intelligence for uh, chemical synthesis, uh, I'm really inviting to uh, Google Ericsson for Chemistry, go on the website and uh, test uh, freely all the technologies that we made available. Absolutely. That's a really stunning overview of a really fantastic piece of work. That's something even I'm proud to say I've tried my hands on. And it's really revolutionary in the way you're talking about it, and especially in the way the potential implications to catalysis, to better material design and all. It is sort of like you talked about closing a loop uh, where you all started off. And it is sort of like a poetic sort of summary of all the work that you have done. This is something that espouses everything Thing, right from better materials to better enzymes uh, to better drug design and all this is something that has potential to transform many things in many different ways and this again talks about the revolutionary manner in which entire fields have been transformed in the last couple of decades where you have been in the thick of things by the interface of computation and mathematics with the physical sciences as a whole Absolutely, you know, this is really one of the biggest uh, revolution that we are uh, living uh, in this decade. Uh, we have been talking since uh, 10, 15 years about the data revolution, but in reality, we are uh, seriously understanding now uh, what is the outcome of uh, uh, this data revolution, um, the, the development of uh, uh, very powerful architecture that can extract knowledge from the data, can help us to design materials, design chemical processes faster, reducing the um, uh, trial and error cycles. Uh, these are all implications that are becoming uh, uh, more and more important day after day. Of course, like everything, um, whenever you have disruptive technologies. Uh, I think that it's important to understand that not every sector is going to be affected equally by the revolution. There are sectors where the data availability is uh, uh, less, um, uh, less important. Uh, and there are sectors where the data availability instead is, uh, is so rich uh, that really calls for the use of machine learning model. Uh, and I believe that for different reasons, chemistry is one of those fields that uh, will be benefiting more uh, of this data and digital revolution. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's very important to understand that- uh, I don't understand. Uh, I think it's very important to understand different choices than also at the level of the education. Um, so for instance, it's important to, um, to identify a specific paths that are also aiming at renewing uh, the teaching uh, in chemistry classes. So for instance, more digital, uh, exposing the students in chemistry even to um, you know data-driven solution or uh, all those skills that are uh, important for bringing chemistry into uh, a more digital space. Uh, this will be beneficial for everybody. Truly so. And speaking of another uh, biological science, or uh, something that has really made the news over the last few months and all, and especially in the last few weeks, is DeepMind's AlphaFold, and as well as yeah. the corresponding model released by David Baker's lab at University of Washington, the Rosetta Fold, and its implications to protein design. And Ericsson for chemistry is something that has similar implications for total organic synthesis and nearby fields, and we are seeing entire fields being transformed. And this is, as you stated, a truly revolutionary time to live in. Absolutely. And um, uh, again, different applications, but uh, you are, um, you know, the, 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 the underneath technology, the technology that is relying extensively on data is really 
showing the full power. Um, in one case, predicting uh, protein structure with an accuracy that only three years ago uh, was, I mean, uh, I, I think the projection basically, if one would have asked three years ago, uh, when are we going to reach this level of accuracy, the level of accuracy uh, reached by AlphaFold, people were going to tell you maybe in 10, 15 years. Um, so that's why the beauty of science is that is highly unpredictable. Um, and the same thing is for Ericsson for chemistry. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it, it's really like uh, uh, the demonstration that uh, a very complex discipline and domain like the one of uh, uh, organic synthesis that is made up by 200 years of uh, uh, historical data uh, can actually uh, be exploited as we exploit natural languages today. I, I still believe that the most fascinating thing in all that beyond the application, but from a scientific perspective, I think the most fascinating thing is uh, the fact that uh, this technology, the natural language processing technology are working incredibly well uh, with this domain data. And that means that uh, you have a certain coherency, a consistency in the organic chemistry to resemble a language. And I'm sure that uh, uh, I, I get excited normally when I think of that. And uh, I'll be, I mean, I, I, I'm incredibly happy when I, we discuss about this topic with organic chemists, people that have been uh, working with, with this, this discipline for 20, 30 years. And one of the best comments that I ever had from one of them was finally, finally we demonstrate to the entire world that organic chemistry is a coherent language and not just a set of uh, anecdotal uh, you know, pieces of information that people have to memorize. So I, I think it's beautiful. It's really the beauty of science. Truly, and where do you see this type of research going in the coming decade, especially in the near future? Do you see it impacting uh, things like throughput and all? And do you think it having even more significant implications for biology in terms of sort of detecting biomarkers or predicting cell death or tissue death of sorts? Yeah, definitely. This is going to be the use of machine learning is going to be, uh, and it's already today, to be honest, and, uh, very important. There are, as I said, it's not going to revolutionize every single aspect. There will be tasks that uh, are going to um, work out better than others. But machine learning and health, machine learning and uh, uh, diagnostic uh, machine learning and uh, um, biology in general are, I would say, have already a very strong, very strong connections. Uh, and, and it's not surprising because at the end we use machine learning whenever we want to build something that uh, can capture the complexity of a system. Uh, when the system is made up of very simple rules, you don't need to do machine learning. Very likely you can construct an analytical uh, equation that is resembled the, the resembling the dynamic of the system. But uh, when uh, you have very complex systems, then the machine learning can actually capture the trends, identify the patterns uh, in a way that our eyes, the eyes of the humans can actually not do. So it's going to be really very important, uh, definitely. And uh, we, 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 we are experiencing lots of personalized medicine. Some of these concepts are heavily based on machine learning. Truly, one is sort of reminded of a graph that many people, especially in the sciences have seen, if not outside of academia, is the cost of genomic sequencing over time. We started off by talking about genomic sequencing and it's Truly, um, uh, uh, that graph, when one sees that graph, there is this cost of $100 million that it took to sequence that one genome that was finally published in its sort of entirety in 2001. And from then to now, the cost has 
dropped to a thousand dollars a genome, and one yeah. sees that that sort of defies the reverse Moore's law prediction. But in two thousand three and four, one notices a sharp drop of sorts because of next-gen sequencing methods that were introduced. And yeah. RxN for chemistry and its similar types seem like. bringing the same sort of feel of revolution into chemistry as such and one can truly wonder the potentially tremendous applications and implications as you beautifully elucidated over the past couple of minutes that it is going to have in this field over the next couple of decades of sorts yes i mean uh, i of course i mean i I'm I'm a very optimistic person, and in reality, I mean, only the time will tell uh, what the impact will be. But I mean, the technology that we developed, I mean, is uh, incredibly useful. For instance, for um, uh, bringing chemistry to everybody that is in the need of chemistry. Think a little bit at how. Uh, we are running chemical labs, probably in Mumbai. You will have. Uh, uh, Chemical labs. I mean, at the university, you will have uh, chemical labs. If you have uh, a high school where they do chemistry classes, uh, you will have chemical labs for sure in companies that are uh, manufacturing chemical substances. And uh, now scale the situation from a single city to the entire planet. It's like uh, 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 really a. a replication of the same type of features and same type of uh, uh, infrastructure so the concept that we put together with Arixan is really the possibility to have ai models that are helping people to drive chemistry and at the same time combining uh, those recommendation with automation hardware now the general idea is pretty clear you can use this technology for building global infrastructure where people can access chemical services just as we are consuming netflix so wherever you are with a portable device from home from the sofa you can watch a netflix movie but if you are a person that requires chemical services you could actually very similarly connect into a portal and have your chemical services that maybe are located 10000 kilometers apart far from you but still i mean you can do chemistry without the need of a local infrastructure this thanks really to the use of ai to the use of automation so i think i mean uh, this is the trend that we will be uh, seeing more and more uh, in the future and it comes with another very positive things the introduction of digital solution in chemistry is really transforming the chemical business because it's going to bring chemistry into an high tech business and this comes with a very important implication in terms of quality controls in terms of environmental impact in terms of supervision for all those activities that normally today are a little bit um how to say ignored so i think it's it comes with not only with a fancy things transforming chemistry in an high tech business but also with very important implication for the environment and for the sustainability really so and in your fantastic journey through science industry and life you've talked a lot about how some people have been really instrumental in getting you here guiding you and all some of your great mentors right from your high school teachers to your doctor advisors so who have been some great mentors of yours including them and what is some mentorship advice from them that has stuck on with you and that is something you also pass on to your own mentees Huh. Uh, many, really many. Uh, it's difficult to make up a list. If there is one thing that I, I need to thank every single mentor that I had uh, in my life, is uh, uh, the fact that they um, always gave me lot of independence in any type of uh, um, activity that we may have. Uh, Uh, we may have done together they teached me truly to think with my head even if this meant often uh, do mistakes uh, but at least uh, 
Um, and so I, I think one of the greatest really advice is uh, uh, don't put passion in what you do. If you put passion and you have the right environment where you can express your freedom, you are going to um, succeed in any way. Uh, the second one is uh, don't be, don't try to look for elements that may be, um, maybe fail, uh, cause the failure of the activity that you're doing. Don't, don't look for that. I mean, of course, it's important, uh, 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 an initial analysis. That's, that's part of a due diligence. But keep that foolish attitude in dreaming big. Um, I, I think that, that these are the two things. I mean, thinking big and uh, maintaining always a very strong passion for whatever you do. If one day, and actually I always keep telling myself, if one day I should wake up with zero passion for science, it's probably going to be the day where I will decide to do something else in my life. And I, I think it should apply a little bit to everything and everybody. Truly, that's a really fantastic piece of advice. And we have talked about how science can be a grueling place sometimes, and it's quite important to take a break and sort of devote time to some other individuals and all. So what are some other engagements that you have outside of academia? And you're also an aviation pilot. So how did your interest in aviation crop up of all things? Yes, so I, um, I mean, the time, the free time, of course, is getting less and less. So the older you get, the less time, the less free time you have. Uh, but uh, no, I try to, I'm a strong supporter of the fact that uh, uh, science and the work have a big component in my life, but there is more than that in life. And it's part of an important integration uh, it's it's i never talk about equilibrium there is never equilibrium in the life but there is integration and it's part of an important integration uh, in the life uh, to have also other interests uh, these are the same interests that keep me very excited in doing the work that i'm doing and so I started to make it short. Again, we can keep that for another podcast, Abby. But to make it short, I mean, I started by doing skydiving. Um, and when I was doing skydiving, I was thinking, you know, you, you, you reach 4,000 meters with an aircraft, you open the door, you jump out of the plane, and everything looks so crazy. But one of the things that I remember is that I was feeling incredibly comfortable in jumping outside of the aircraft. But when the pilot was maneuvering the aircraft, I was thinking, oh Jesus, that's so complex. I, I don't think I'm ever able to do that. And then suddenly you open the door and you jump out of the plane. So uh, starting from skydiving at a certain point, I decided to, uh, one day I gave me as a present one, uh, one lesson uh, of, uh, uh, flying instructor to understand a little bit more how flying works. And this has been my, uh, since then, uh, I would say passion number one. Now for me, flying, it's really like uh, uh, a way of moving. Now, factoring out the pandemic time, uh, it's really like driving a car and uh, it's lovely. I mean, it's really an environment where you have, uh, an extreme uh, discipline dictated by the air traffic controllers, by the uh, control their space. Uh, it's a system that is beautiful to watch. You have many people and it's the coordination between many people that makes uh, the entire air traffic system to work smoothly and 24 hours per day. Uh, I, I'm in love every time I, I'm, I'm talking about aviation. And again, we could do another podcast one day. But every time I talk about aviation, I really remark the fact that uh, it's an example of how you can have a very complex system 
across borders, across national borders, where everything works smoothly because people are all working in one objective, which is the safety and the safe operation of the aircraft. So it's, uh, it's really a fascinating world, yeah. Truly, that's a really fantastic answer and really epitomizes the essence of the really fantastic conversation we have had over the past hour and so. And finally, as a Random Works podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random world? Um, three people to nominate, I mean, for, for an experience in a random walk. Um, let me think. So I would definitely nominate one person, which is uh, Giovanni Bussi. Uh, I think he would be a great uh, speaker for random walk uh, existence. We have been colleagues during uh, uh, the uh, years in the group of Michele Parinello. Uh, a second person to nominate for a random walk. This, this is challenging. I, I didn't prepare myself. So... <laughs> um, Typically anyone in academia, either in university or yeah. in industry, anyone does. Or anyone who has had a stint in academia and might have left it, that also works for someone like Cedric Milani for that matter. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you can try to check if uh, Alana Spuroguzic is interested in a random walk because definitely is going to be, I think he has quite lots of walks, more or less random that he can tell you about. Uh, this is the person number two and the person number three, let me stay with... Uh, <laughs> Let me stay with one person. I mean, is um, oh, if you manage to get there, um, it may be tricky, but it may be a very interesting call. I know that we remain within IBM, but she's Van Andreoni. If you can get her, uh, I think she has lots of very interesting stories, random walks that she can tell you. She's the person, by the way, that. Uh, uh, built the, the entire group of computational chemistry in IBM. Those are some terrific nominations. And thank you. Thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random work. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Abhi.